Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast all about the deep sea. I am not Tom Lindley, and as always, I am the professor. So Tom's not with us this month because at long last, he's finally got back out to the deep blue. He's away doing a deep sea fishing expedition on the Bounty Trough, I believe, south of New Zealand. So he's not available, but he will be chiming in with some news from his travels. So as of now, this podcast is mine, all mine, nothing to do with Tom. But if anything goes wrong, it's still his fault. So that's the uh, the T's and C's out of the way. As always, we want to say a huge thank you to all our patrons that are continuing to support us and that help us make this show happen. And this month, we want to give a big shout out to Jacqueline, Tyler Medeiros, and Kevin Gilly for their generous support. Got a very special and a shout out today, and the shout out is to Violet, the volcanologist. Violet is four years old and is obsessed with volcanoes and hydrothermal vents. And our mum, Kelly, got in touch to show us some photographs of Violet's handmade vent octopus, Pinata, for her party and her teaching her friends at daycare all about volcanoes with her volcano rock collection. So well done, Violet. Keep up that. Other interesting things, a friend of the show, Frida, from Moku Art Studio, is organising their first virtual art exhibition called Under the Sea. And this will showcase ocean-themed art from international artists. We're going to be the judges alongside some other international scientists and artists. And a deadline to submit your work is March 31st. If you want to submit something, have a look in the show notes and there'll be a link to it there. So whilst taking over the podcast and Tom's absence while he's off at sea, I forgot to mention something in that I am also at sea. And right now I am about 60 nautical miles off the equator in an area which is about four days north of Samoa in a place called the Northern Canton Trough, which is actually a fracture zone. And here we're doing a 12-week survey of the life and habitat and geology of the fracture zone. And it's a 400-mile-long crack in the deep Pacific Bissell Plains that goes down to about 8,200 metres. And just the other day, I did a dive to 6,225 metres, which was amazing. We saw new snailfish and lots of crinoids and lots of uh, other bits and pieces. We were the first people ever to get into this particular fracture zone, which is great. And in about 51 minutes, I will jump in the sub again, and this time dive to 6,700 metres. So hopefully that'll be good. But by the time this podcast comes out, I will be in the cell. So I will save that one for next month. So there we go. A podcast first. Both of us are at sea right now. So apologies for the audio. It's very exciting stuff. So without Tom here this month, uh, I'm free to do whatever I want. And we need to think of a a song of the month. I don't really have one, but at the same time, the ship that Tom's on right now is the Tangaroa, and Tom would object to me suggesting the same song we've used on a previous podcast, but it's the only song we know called Tangaroa, so the song of the month, this one, is uh, Alien Weaponry, Tangaroa. What's in the news this week, Tom? Oh yeah, he's not here. I'm going to have to do this myself. All right. Film director Bong Joon-ho, who directed Parasite, is set to begin filming deep sea species for his new film this year. He's going to be filming this animated feature film involving deep sea creatures. The film is expected to delve into the relationship between marine life and humanity. But what's amazing is the huge budget, which is apparently 52 million US dollars, making it the most expensive production in Korean film history. So that's kind of exciting. Another news, scientists at the University of Copenhagen have described a new species of mud dragon from the continental rise of the South Island in New Zealand. So the species is called Christophys microtubuliferus. And for those who don't know, mud dragons are tiny animals that are less than a millimetre long and can be found everywhere from the beach to the deep sea. These tiny animals are tube-like and covered in scales, hence their name is mud dragons, and they can retract their heads back into the trunks and cover the opening with plates, like turtles can. They also have unusual reproductive behaviour, with females carrying their fertilised eggs, packing them into a protective envelope. Caring for young in this way is pretty unusual for microscopic animals. Despite first discovering in the mid-1800s, we still know so little about them and their role in the ecosystem. According to the scientists at University of Copenhagen, he is one of only a handful of scientists who've ever studied them. So maybe he's one for the show. So for more information on mud dragons and the guys behind that discovery, go to the show notes and there'll be a link in there. 
new fishery for lanternfish. A research centre based at Sintef Ocean in Norway is currently working to find out exactly how lanternfish can be exploited as a basis for a profitable and sustainable fisheries industry. As lanternfish live in huge quantities in the mesopelagic zone, between about 200 and 1,000 metres, the major issue with harvesting the fish at these depths is that they deteriorate very, very rapidly. And this is due to enzymes that break the bodies down, turning them very quickly into fish soup as the head researcher stated in this particular article, which we'll link to in the show notes. Not sure I'm happy about that. I don't like the idea of looking for new and elaborate ways to exploit another entire group of animals because it's never really worked out that well. But anyway, people are on it. Hello, Deep Sea Podcast. This is Tom checking in from the Bounty Trough, which is out to the east of the South Island of New Zealand. So we're a fair way out. We're pretty much on the... Subantarctic Convergence, so we're sort of where the the Southern Ocean meets the Pacific. And we think this structure is an old riverbed from when Zealandia was a, a much bigger continent before it sort of sank below the sea. And so there's this really interesting crack going out from roughly in line with Otago in New Zealand. And then it goes way out into the abyssal plain at about 5,000 meters and takes this meandering track. So we've been out here with the goal of cataloging and discovering as many new species as possible because this is an area we have not been before. There's very few data points from this. Even the, the mapping resolution has been really low. So we found quite a few new seamounts, but the channel itself, being as old as it is, I, I thought it was going to be almost hard to see when you're down on the bottom. I thought it was going to be mostly filled in with sediment, but no, it's like, it's like the Grand Canyon. There's like sheer cliff sides and it's obviously being sort of flushed of sediment. So I'm a little bit worried about the gear we've put down in there because obviously at least at times there's really high current flow. And this has been first time out sort of since before the COVID times. And I'd forgotten how stressful it all was. Me and Alan like to tell stories, but like quite stressful moments then become stories once they have an end. Uh, and when you know how they end, they sort of, they're more compartmentalized. So I'd forgotten how unknown and stressful it was prepping in the early days. So I decided to build a couple of fish traps for this expedition. And I, you know, said, oh, that's that's something I could do. I'll contribute that. And um, just being in a new country, figuring out suppliers, getting things delivered on time, things turn up and then they don't fit together in the, in the way that you expect them to. Like there was these L-shaped brackets that you know, I, I didn't even give it a second thought. It was like, oh, well, these would be perfect for joining these parts together. But then the screws that I'd got that came with them, the heads were too big, so they wouldn't fit in these brackets. So then I had to sort of quickly think about that. It's been, the weeks leading up to this, it's been a lot of really late nights and working on weekends to try and get these things ready. And to be honest, they were still not very ready when they got here. Uh, I still had to stitch the nets. As Alan and me have found in the past, it doesn't matter how much flotation or ballast you put on a trap, it's the drag that slows it down. So there's sort of a terminal velocity. It can't go any faster. You can't put any more weight or lift on it. It just, that's the speed through the water of this amount of mesh. So on the first few deployments, brand new vehicles, no idea what their speed is through water. And the only data point I have to go on is the distance between me talking to them and them replying. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right below us. So we don't know where they drifted to. We don't know where they'd settled on the seabed. And the vessel was drifting at about two and a half knots. So I was getting these readings changing and trying to interpret, has it left the bottom? Is it on the way up? How how fast is it if it is on the way up? Because we didn't know where we were in relative space. You know, the, the vessel could be drifting towards it, which was tricking me into thinking that it was on the way up. It got a little bit easier once we went deeper because if I got a range that was less than the depth, I knew it was on the way up. But on the shallower sites, it was really, really tricky. And I just didn't know what the speed through water would be. So we're, we're up on the bridge scanning the horizon, you know, holding up the ship and it might be up in half an hour. It might be up in two hours. And it just, it felt like a very, very long two hours with sort of all eyes on me. So I'd forgotten how stressful that was. In the early designs, it did turn out to be very slow. It was only coming up at about 10 meters a minute. And so that made it really difficult to tease it apart from the, from the drift. But we rejigged the design. We reduced the amount of netting. Now it's flying up at about 41 meters a minute, which isn't bad for, for a trap. And now we know that speed. You know, I can let the bridge know to within a few minutes when it's going to pop up. So far less stressful. But for those early days with a new vehicle, trying to figure all that out. Yeah, it was, it was stressful. I was not sleeping well for the first week of this trip. 
and it looks like there are two new species. So that's exactly what we're out here to do, and that's quite exciting. So two new species maybe of eel pouts of Pachycara, which in the previous work that me and Alan did sort of out here, we'd earmarked the, the eel pouts as, as a place where we know we'd seen things on the video that we didn't get in the traps. We know there was more species there, so it's nice to, uh, to finish that up. I mentioned that the, the traps weren't very ready when they arrived. That was mainly the, the net stitching part, which is hugely, hugely time consuming. So I wanted to give a massive shout out to those that have helped me get those together. And friend of the show, Kat Bolstad of the Squid Squad, has been staying up well past her shifts to help stitch these. And also Daniel Moore from Ocean Census, who are our collaborators on this trip. Uh, they've spent a lot of time out on deck with me. And even when I'm working, they've cracked on with it, just getting the stitching ready. But the real hero is the gold crochet hook, which has been dubbed the savior of modern science. So Kat happened to have with her a crochet hook, which was instrumental in stitching these traps, especially once you start to enclose all the sides. So you can't get in as much, you can't sort of reach inside. So yeah, crochet hook, pack it in your science bag. And we embraced the we embraced the, the net stitching culture. So we also had sea shanties playing and we were all sat around on upturned buckets stitching this net and it felt very, oh, it felt very maritime, felt very appropriate. So massive thank you to those that have uh, helped me get these things ready in time. Sorry I couldn't be personally on this one, but uh, it's all been a bit hectic and I'm not sure when our times would overlap, but I'm sure uh, you're in safe hands with Alan. And given that I'm basically freestyling and freefalling this entire episode, we're going to cover various topics from heavy metal, like the alien weaponry and Tangaroa. And we'll, heavy metal will creep back into the episode later on. And we've already spoke about lanternfish and the mesopelagic, the top thousand meters. They'll creep back into this later on. And I think I've not had a rant in a while. I haven't had a proper rant in a while. I've only had little micro rants, I would say. If you go back to some of the earlier episodes, I do have... Beautiful big mega rants. So I've prepared another rant, and that rant is about when does the sea become deep sea and why we should change that. Let's talk about when does the sea become deep sea, or rather, when should the sea become deep sea? So over 30 years ago, eminent deep sea biologist John Gage and Paul Tyler published a classic textbook, Deep Sea Biology and Natural History of Organisms at the Deep Sea Floor. Early in that book, they asked a solid opener, what is the deep sea? And they explained that, ask virtually any deep sea biologist and you'll get a slightly different answer. In most deep sea literature, the deep sea is considered to be the oceans deeper than 200 metres. Often this is given with a caveat of also being beyond the edge of the continental shelf that bounds the periphery of the ocean basins. It is also said that the upper limit can be based on the depth of the mixed surface layer, temperature, light penetration, or the depth below in which plant life is largely absent which the latter two suggesting the limit to photosynthesis. A biological transition from shallow water fauna to the shelf to the deep sea fauna has also been defined for some time, or the combined descriptor of penetration of sunlight, a covariant of depth, and by the associated fauna. But the general consensus is that the deep sea is the ocean beyond the shelf break at depths deeper, deeper than 200 metres, underlying the photic zone. So establishing a solid definition requires a consensus for coherent communication and that language use is a matter of social consensus, and that we delegate stronger authority to the use of certain terms to relevant authorities. This is why us as scientists need to clarify what we actually think the deep sea is. The issue with the term deep sea is that the word deep is very subjective, and it can mean different things in different contexts. For example, the deep end of a swimming pool can be three metres. Deep sea sports fishing is generally fishing greater than 30 metres. Deep sea fishing industry generally in the top 1,000 metres. Deep sea mining is 4,000 to 6,000 metres. Challenger Deep is 11 kilometers underwater, and it gets really muddy when you start looking at deep space. Deep, by definition, simply means extending far down from the top of a surface, and far simply means a great distance, and great means unusual or comparatively large in size. The term is used entirely in context of the activity in which it's being used. While acknowledging times where something was once thought too deep, in hindsight is no longer sufficiently challenging to feel unreachable. So historically, the definition of deep sea has been argued based on what was known at the time to be considered deep. In the book Fandoming the Oceans, there's a story there that regales correspondence from 1869 where J. Gwynne Jeffries wrote to the journal Nature claiming that 10 fathoms, which is 18 metres, was too shallow for the term deep sea, which had apparently been the definition since the 1840s. He claimed that 50 fathoms, which is 91 metres, was a better delimiter for the deep sea based on the depths that were readily being sampled at the time. 
Eight years later, he had further refined it to abyssal for anything from a thousand fathoms, which is 183 to 1,829 meters. This is arguably the first mention of what is now the Bathiel zone, and therefore the defining the upper limits of the deep sea, approximately 200 to 2,000 meters, albeit rounded following a conversion from fathoms, refers to the neurotic zone, its depths less than 200 fathoms, and Bathiel is depth between 200 fathoms and 2,000 fathoms. The famous Edward Forbes described his regions of depth. The first was a littoral zone for the space between the tide marks. The second was a circumlittoral or laminarian zone, coined after the tangles of seaweeds. And the third was the median coralline zone, a depth that occupied between 10 and 50 fathoms, where seaweeds were mostly absent. And the fourth region was the inframedian, a region of deep-sea stony corals. And the fourth was the abyssal region, which can be scarcely said to be developed within the British area. Therefore, Forbes' depth definitions were simply based on local biodiversity surveys around Europe. So regardless of how the exact depth was established, it appears clear that it was based upon a less or greater than 100-year-old European or North Atlantic-centric idea of waters that extend beyond the continental shelf in those areas. Defining rules to the natural world as simply as what is deep and what is not deep will always run into exceptions or variability that may lead to questioning the value of the rule at all. For example, 200 metres as a limit to plant growth is quickly challenged since seaweeds have been found as deep as 265 metres, albeit most are less than 200. Solar light penetrates much deeper into the ocean than 200 metres by another 800 in some places. 2.7 million square kilometres of continental shelf around Antarctica tends to be closer to 450 metres, over twice the norm of 200. And in the absence of continental shelf in places such as islands and atolls, the 200-metre contour is often ignored altogether when defining transitions. Therefore, consistency in nomenclature when defining ocean realms or zones where the issues lie. So let's think about the continental shelf thing. The continental shelf only accounts for 8.9% of the 32 million square kilometres of ocean. The significance of the 200-metre contour is greater in the western regions where early marine science emerged than others across the globe. Using some stats from a paper by Harris et al. 2014 on the global area of the undersea geomorphology, it was found that as a percentage surface area, the percentages in the aforementioned western areas, the North Atlantic, Mediterranean, Black Sea, were 16 and 23% respectively. These are in contrast to the Indian Ocean, 5.7, South Atlantic Ocean, 5, North Pacific Ocean, 7.5. South Pacific Ocean, 2.9. And there are, however, large percentages in the polar regions with 51%, 13%. So basically, there's a far more continental shelf around the North Atlantic, Mediterranean, Black Sea than there are in other oceans. The Arctic arguably played an important role in the early Western exploration by bounding the North Atlantic Ocean between North America and Europe. The combined continental shelf area of the Arctic, North Atlantic, Mediterranean, Black Sea is 14 million square kilometers. Therefore, 45.7% global shelf areas situated in these areas that account for just 16.8% of the oceans, but happen to be regions that have a strong legacy in marine science at the time of defining basic terms of oceanography. Gunther and Decker, 1956, described the deep sea as driven by geomorphology, where, down to 200 metres, the bottom has a relatively gentle gradient, and then below 200 metres, the bottom generally falls more steeply. But what they are describing here is the North Atlantic, and not necessarily a global scenario that is easily recognised around the Pacific Rim or Global South. In the inhabited Global South, the South Atlantic, South Pacific and Indian Oceans, which is 55% of the ocean combined, the continental shelf accounts for just 4% of that combined area, or 26% of the global shelf area. Alternatively, the combined shelf area of the North and South Pacific represents just 5.1% of the area. Furthermore, the continental shelf around Antarctica is much deeper than other continental shelves, with an average of 450 metres, which can extend over 1,000 metres, and is also unique in that some of the shelf area features glacially excavated over deepened inner basin that can be over 1,500 metres deep. On average, our Arctic shelf is almost twice as deep as other continental shelves elsewhere. So the 200 metre shallow to deep boundary is likely an artefact from the days of early scientific exploration originating from around the North Atlantic and does not offer any practical bathymetric or geomorphological boundaries in most of the rest of the world. Although there are large areas of shelves in other areas, for example, Australia or Argentina and so on. So perhaps light would be a major consideration. Solar light is often posited as a driver of marine diversity and biomass due to photosynthesis-derived phytoplankton increasing available energy in the upper ocean that indirectly supports a complex food web that supports the deeper waters below. At 100 metres below the surface of a clear ocean, the quantal spectrum of daylight narrows significantly and becomes much dimmer 
declining by about 2.6 log units, but can vary considerably in different clarities of ocean water. Below 100 metres, coinciding with a decrease in plant and suspended organic matter, light intensity declines by about 1.5 orders of magnitude for every 100 metre water depth. By 600 to 700 metres, it reaches starlight levels during day. Beyond 1,000 metres, daylight no longer penetrates sufficiently to be significant to deep sea animals. The seawater has a higher refractive index than air, which results in the entire 180-degree dome of the sky being compressed underwater to a 97-degree cone known as Snell's window, which is always brighter than surrounding spacelight. Although it is dominated by the position of the sun and the surface layers, its dominance declines with depth, disappearing altogether below the so-called aseptotic depth at approximately 400 metres in the clearest ocean water, albeit shallower and more turbid water. Therefore, solar light seems to be quite significant at twice the depth of what we're calling the deep sea. So let's think about where shallow species go deep. Many large marine taxa that are often synonymous with the surface layers are known to make excursions to the deep sea beyond 200 metres. For example, deepest Arctic whale is 1,592, deepest sperm whale is over 1,000 metres, deepest beaked whale is nearly 3,000 metres, dolphins are known to go to 300 metres, great white sharks 1,000, and so on and so on. Even reptiles and birds are known to cross the 200 metre contour. And I was quite surprised to learn the sea snakes go to 250 metres. These are examples of species most often considered surface-dwelling species that happen to make brief deep dives or excursions greater than 200 metres. Other uses of deep sea by shallow species in inverted commas, such as the most dominant member of the zooplankton, the copepods, is diapods, which is a kind of dormancy that is temporarily initiated in direct response to unfavourable and viable mental conditions to thrive in high-latitude environments. The access areas where temperatures are generally colder and predators are less abundant or absent, diapause is initiated by a vertical migration to depths of several hundred to several thousand metres. There was a study that reviewed six specific species, four Atlantic species and one southern ocean species, and reported that all but one had a diapause range of more than 200 metres. Therefore, the importance and abundant surface-dwelling groups such as marine zooplankton are using the deep sea for a significant phase of their life history. So in addition to shallow water species that dive deep or temporarily diapause at depth, there are also species commonly associated with being shallow that have depth ranges that extend beyond the 200 metre contour. Of the top 10 most commercially landed wild fish species identified by the FAO, only two of them are known exclusively from less than 200 metres. The rest transcend this magical 200 metre deep sea boundary. For example, the Alaska pollock, the skipjack tuna, Atlantic herring, chub mackerel, the elephant tuna, the Chinese anchovy, the large-haired hairtail, and the Atlantic cod. These are all regularly found beyond the 200-metre limit. So what about when deep-sea species go shallow? The deep pelagic zone greater than 200 metres contains almost 95% of the ocean's volume. Diovertical migration is ubiquitous across the mesopelagic taxa. Mesopelagic fishes are among the most abundant marine organisms on Earth and are small and usually found at depths between 100 and 1,000 metres. Most mesopelagic species make extensive upward migration into the epipelagic zone during the night and thereafter migrate down several hundred metres to their daytime depths. But tophid larvae remain in the epipelagic zone, which is less than 200 metres, and then move relatively to deeper depths to adapt to their later adult life in the mesopelagic zone after which most species start dial vertical migration. Our friend of the podcast, Tracy Sutton, once stated that with a distribution range of 200 to 1,000 metres during daylight, the mesopelagic fish's nocturnal migration would be considered an upward atmosphere flux into the epipelagic. This suggests that the deep mesopelagic is a fundamental element of the ecology of large epipelagic fishes, and the epipelagic is therefore integral to the ecology of nearly all mesopelagic fishes. This means that the mesopelagic fishes, amongst the most abundant marine organism on the planet, are neither shallow nor deep-sea fishes, but rather utilised at the top 1,000 metres. So what about depth ranges of common marine taxa? In addition to shallow species going deep and deep species going shallow, and many marine taxa that are quite familiar in our daily lives extend far deeper than is generally appreciated. For example, marine groups such as the cephalopods are all found well below the 200-metre mark. Even cuttlefish at 600 metres, nautilus at 700 metres, vampire squid 5,000, squid 6,000, octopus 7,000. Other mollusks such as snails and clams are known from over 10,700 metres and sea slugs from 4,400 metres. Many orders of cnidarians are known from hadal depths. Hydrozoan jellyfish now known from over 10,000 metres. Sharks raised chimeras are found beyond 3,000 and 3,000 metres respectively. Jawless fishes such as the hagfish can be found at 3,000 metres. Of course, bony fish can be found over 8,000 metres. Many kinodorms are represented at hadal depths, with sea stars to nearly 10, brill stars to 8.5, urchins to 7.5, sea lilies to nearly 10, and so on and so on. At the taxonomic class level, there are very few examples of those who do not use the deep sea at all. 
someone else who uses the deep sea is us. So what about the industrialization of the deep sea? Another aspect to the subjectiveness of the term deep is how out of reach and difficult access is it really? Here we can think about how much access we have to depths greater than 200 meters by using various industrial activities. For example, deep sea fisheries. Deep sea fishing was once a very challenging and dangerous activity, but not so much in modern times. There are 72 species or species groups being caught primarily with bottom trawls, mostly at depths greater than 400 meters. There was a paper found that the most fished and vulnerable deep sea fishery species were the Greenland halibut, which go down 1,000 meters, orange ruffy, also 1,800 meters, red-nosed deer, 1,200 meters, slender armorhead, 600 meters, Patagonian toothfish, 1,500 meters, blue line, 500 meters, and the long-nosed velvet dogfish, 1,500 meters. These fisheries are occurring well within the deep sea and demonstrate an intrinsic, albeit negative, link to the deep sea, irrespective of what we may consider to be deep. However, the vast majority in terms of catch weight landed is generally in the top 1,000 metres. Furthermore, the industrialization of fishing fleets has resulted in bottom trawling on the continental slopes, reshaping the actual seafloor over large spatial scales. Trawling-induced sediment displacement and removal from fishing grounds reduces seafloor complexity, smoothing it over time. Papers have anticipated comparable effects on the deep sea floor by trawling to those generated by agricultural plowing on land. In the Mediterranean, commercial trawling between 200 and 800 metres is estimated that the daily amount of organic carbon removed by trawling could be as high as 60 to 100% of the input flux, resulting in the degradation of sedimentary habitats and a significant decrease in, and slower, organic carbon turnover, therefore reduced myofauna abundance and biodiversity. There are studies that conclude that commercial deep-sea trawling represents a major threat to the deep-sea ecosystem at the global scale, but albeit largely within the top 1,000 meters. So the deep-sea is not only a place to extract food. There is also an emerging industry in Asia that promotes the drinking of deep-sea water for health benefits. There are papers that describe the health benefits of water to which a mineral extract obtained from the deep-sea water is added, where it is defined as seawater from the depth of greater than 200 meters. It is thought that drinking deep-sea-derived mineral water could have numerous health benefits, including improving gut ecosystem and beneficial effects on intestinal health, and possibly alleviate obesity and diabetes and a range of other benefits. Who knows? In these studies, water is actually pumped from a depth of 1,100 meters, around 18 kilometers off South Korea. The usage of deep-sea water is an emerging industry, with some commercial brands boasting their deep-sea water-based drink is concentrated from water pumped from 662 metres off Taiwan. This particular site has inlets 600, 660 and 710 metres deep. It is also emerging in Japan with great economic values worth billions of dollars. The United States also extract deep water from 600 metres, 670 metres and 900 metres deep off Hawaii to applications for bottled drinking water, agricultural, pharmaceutical and cosmetic products. There was even a Japanese journal dedicated to research into applications for deep-sea water that published from 2000 to 2018. In many regions of the world, increasing water demands and diminishing groundwater supplies are prompting a greater reliance on desalination as desalination water is expected to play a pivotal role in narrowing the water demand supply gap. As the production of desalinated water increases, methods to make the industry more efficient are being sought. One issue of efficiency is that of entrainment of marine organisms that can be substantially reduced or eliminated by placing intakes away from biologically productive areas, such as in deeper water farther offshore. Such intakes are supposed to be as deep as 600 metres. Another global industry present in the deep sea greater than 200 metres is the oil and gas industry. There are currently an estimated 12,000 offshore platforms and 180,000 kilometres of subsea pipelines. Furthermore, offshore marine renewable energy developments are likely to increase the amount of subsea infrastructure over the next 20 years. Although most platforms are situated between 30 and 150 metres of water on the continental shelf, there is deep water greater than 200 metre productions in areas such as the Arctic, North Atlantic Ocean, East and West Africa, Gulf of Mexico, South America, India, Southeast Asia and Australia. The majority of these are in water depths of less than a thousand meters. Although ultra water greater than a thousand meter production does occur, it's still in its early stages and limited to areas such as the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes West Africa. Most deep water fixed platforms in the Gulf of Mexico are located across the edge of the continental slope at depths up to about 400 metres. Here, approximately half of the fixed platforms are in 120 to 150 metre depths, with the remaining in approximately 150 to 300 metre depths. Only six fixed platforms reside in depths greater than 300 metres, and some floating platforms are located throughout the region in depths of 500 to 3,000 metres. So in modern times, we're readily fishing the top 1,000 metres. We're reshaping it with bottom trolls. We're drinking water from it. We're extracting hydrocarbons from it. Our most recognisable surface fauna, including air breathers, are utilising waters greater than 200 metres. The largest marine biomass is largely confined to the top 1,000 metres to migrate. Well, plankton use the top 1,000 metres is overwintering refugium. 
None of these excursions, migrations, or anthropocentric activities were known or were occurring at the time the deep sea was considered to begin at 200 meters. So I think when you start putting all this together and you think about subjectiveness of the word deep, deep is, means it's kind of out of reach. It's a place which is quite difficult to get to, and that was once true. And the 200 meter mark being associated with the continental shelf is something that which is primarily driven by the early marine scientists operating around the North Atlantic. I propose that the deep sea should really start at 1,000 metres, because the 1,000 metres, it does become quite challenging. And if we're regularly fishing and eating and drinking and extracting stuff and animals are utilising this whole body of water, the deep sea doesn't seem that deep anymore. 1,000 metres, to me, no longer feels that it's out of reach. As a society, it's not something which is difficult to do. It's not challenging anymore. So it's about time we redefined what the deep sea was and changed into a thousand meters. So joining us today is the social media and squid legend, Jeff Day. So Jeff, welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast. Thank you for having me, Alan. So tell us a bit about yourself, because I we actually don't know very much about you. You're someone we've, we've come across basically by using Twitter. And you're obviously quite a big presence on there. And we thought it would be an interesting spin on this episode to, to speak to someone who's very much in that kind of environment. So just kick off with telling us a bit about you. Sure. That's always something that's rather hard for me to summarize, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. A software engineer is my day job. Uh -huh. I live in Houston, Texas, and I've always kind of been interested in the weird and deep sea life, uh -huh. but I never really got super deep into it until fairly recently. So you're not a scientist then? Nope. That's amazing because we were at some point trying to figure out exactly where you were because we just figured your knowledge of cephalopods and deep sea stuff is, is almost encyclopedic. So we're thinking, well, where does this guy work? And we couldn't find you anywhere. So, <laughs> so you're not a scientist at all. This is just a hobby of yours. Pretty much. I guess I've picked up a lot via uh, osmosis and from conversing with actual scientists. Oh, that's brilliant. No, I love it. I love it. That's, that's, that's so cool. So you're obviously a big part of deep sea community on social media. And what is it about these platforms that you find so engaging um there are a number of things partially it's the kind of immediacy of it uh, a lot of us are just watching the dives as they happen and for example i'll be watching nautilus and i'll see uh, a tenengia and i'll tweet a bunch of expletives and then a clip of the squid itself uh -huh. right as it's happening um and also it's just it's like a very easy venue for me to consume lots of information and find out a lot of different things from people who are highly specialized uh, amongst a particular topic. And my brain kind of builds this map of topics to specialists. So yeah. it's always kind of fun for me to come across something and then figure out who the best person to ask about it is. Yeah, because it feels like social media is now actually genuinely quite a useful tool for science in terms of sourcing rare observations or, or content or getting IDs from experts. And in the good old days, that wasn't possible. So it feels that social media is actually genuinely part of the scientific process now. We've, we've certainly used it recently as well. Yeah, I think there are actually a couple of papers that were published specifically from collaborations that occurred on Twitter. One of them I can think of off the top of my head is Derek Hennan, who studies centipedes and millipedes. Mm -hmm. did a paper with a mycologist um, or maybe it was a parasitologist because they were looking at one of his photos and they noticed this extremely tiny parasite or fungus that hadn't been documented before and just by a happenstance and so they published on it. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I think it's like, a, it feels like there's now a bit of a, a gray area between the scientific community and citizen science where it's actually both citizens, if you like, or non-scientific communities and scientific communities are meeting in the middle and actually being quite constructive. So certainly in people like yourselves and others I've seen on, on Twitter who are watching these live feeds and, and pulling out images and actually doing a lot of the, the outreach on their own rather than it coming from the scientists to non-scientists. I think that's, that's a really interesting aspect of this. Yeah, I was joking with somebody who asked a question on Reddit about some observations of like these specifically rare squid. And I was explaining to them how I came to know all this stuff. And I wound up, I think the sentence was, it occurred to me while I was writing this that it's maybe not exactly normal to have a mental Rolodex of toothologists <laughs> and their relevant families of expertise and which social media platforms they respond the quickest on. <laughs> so so you're, you're, quite, you're documenting all this as well, right? I, I read somewhere that you, I think you said you were uh, compiling every known observation of the, the Magna Pinidae, the big fence. 
Is that right? Oh, yeah. That that how that came to happen is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, because I know that you've spoken to the Magna Pena archive, and he and I randomly kind of connected because I was just posting random clips of Magna Pena that I was digging up when I first started getting into this, and he starts messaging me asking where I'm getting these and if I've seen a particular one. And yeah. eventually, like he starts the Magna Pena archive channel, and we kind of I kind of give him the heads up whenever I ever come across a new one, which did just happen in the oddest way possible. I found a Magna Pena observation in the Jamstack archives I hadn't noticed before. That's cool, because remember we were speaking to, we did a podcast episode with Mike Vecchione, and he was talking about the value of rare observations and things like he would never dream of even applying for money to put together an expedition to go look for the big fin, right? That's not how you're going to get these observations. These observations will be happening by accident and by chance and so you know rvs working offshore might come across one a scientist so you know japan may see one and over time these will eventually become a data set and i think somewhere in the middle of all that it has to percolate through social media and people like yourselves are bundling it up and saying here you go and that's that's how that type of science is done there probably isn't a better way for doing it right now that's it's just that's just the way it is yeah that was a really interesting point that he made and it ties a lot into a study that came out last year that um i think it was like benoit bird and a few other co-authors including bruce robeson of mbari and they devised this study where they had two vehicles they had an auv and an rov and they mounted echo sounders on each of them to try and figure out what the animals that were beyond visual range were doing in response to the the vehicles yeah. and it kind of it kind of shook out the way you would expect like one portion didn't care the other were attracted to it the other kind of kept a fixed distance between them and the vehicles yeah. and one group just got the hell away as far as they could and that's that's so tantalizing to me as somebody who like tries to go through rov video and find the you know obscure squid is that there's this subclass of in the latter group animals that are just we're either never going to see or yeah we're just going to come across them completely incidentally and like a total unrelated video it's like the great skittish right there's a whole community out there that just are uneasy about something else being near them and you know they may well go unobserved for a long time and it makes sense because it deep sees an environment where you wouldn't expect it to be a vehicle with thrusters and lights and acoustic systems pinging away they probably don't really know what to do <laughs> it's interesting to me that some animals are attracted to it that you you would think would have the instinct to run like the dana octopus squid for example gets preyed on by all sorts of marine mammals but whenever you shine an rov light on it they just say hey what's up and then start attacking the rov or at least that happened once to uh to noah yeah, we see a lot of uh, strange behaviors in the deep sea fish. So you, when you get normal rat tails, they quite often will come and explore something you put on the seafloor. They, they like to sniff around and just, oh, something you arrived. What is this? And then recently we had an incident with a, I was in the submersible and we came across a giant cuscule. And it just honestly did not know what to do with itself. It's like it hadn't prepared anything over millions of years. It did not know what to do when this big object came towards it. It was kind of like, well, should I turn around? Should I go up? Should I just maybe tilt my head a little bit? And it was, it was almost kind of embarrassing. Like, I'm really sorry, mate. You know, we're not supposed to be here. <laughs> if you just get out of the way, we'll go about our business. It was the most peculiar thing. Yeah, there's definitely that subclass of animals that just kind of get confused or yeah. disoriented and then start swimming into things. I, I, for yeah. a while, I was compiling some clips of just, yeah, rat tails just coming across an ROV and then just immediately swimming straight into the, the seafloor. Yeah. So going back to the sort of the, the usefulness of the social media platforms, if you've ever listened to the podcast, you'll know that I'm terrible at social media. I really genuinely am. I'm finding Twitter to be more and more useful at the moment because of people like yourself and, and guys like the Kino blog and various others who, who you can lean on for quick IDs and things like that. But how is it changing? Do you feel like since you got into this, that the social media environment is changing to this type of stuff? And what are the best platforms for this type of observation sharing at the moment? Um, that's an interesting question. So I definitely started out on this on Twitter and the science community on Twitter has been very strong. I think sort of in the last couple of years, people have looked for alternative platforms. Yeah. There's a fairly solid science community on both Mastodon and Blue Sky, but at the same time, they don't have quite the critical mass of people participating. I know that if I if I need an ID, I'll still tag people on Twitter because there are a bunch of people who are only on Twitter or who just respond faster there versus the other platforms. Yeah. Um, I would say that the landscape has kind of changed in that, you know, Twitter isn't the end all be all in terms of communicating with people on a very fast basis, but there's not really 
a solid alternative that's emerged as the the next thing after that. Yeah. So you're a squid guy then. So what, what is it that draws you towards the squid? You know, it's funny. I didn't start out as a squid guy. I actually started getting more into this because uh, I wanted to learn more about Dumbo octopuses. Mm -hmm. But the further I got into it, the more I realized that footage of Dumbo octopods is not super common. Yeah. And there are only, you know, four major families and you can kind of get a handle on, you know, the different species of each. But when it comes to deep sea squid, they're just astonishingly diverse and they have the widest variety of just crazy body plans yeah. like if you look at something like magna Pinna or juvenatuthis and then of course at the other end of the spectrum you've got your squid shaped squid like philodotuthis and stuff like that and i don't know the variety is just i haven't gotten bored of it yet there are just so many interesting beautiful animals yeah no i love it whenever we see a squid there's great excitement and uh, a couple of years ago we found the, the dumbbell octopus down at seven thousand meters that was just incredible it's just what a beautiful animal to find it's such ridiculous deep depths but one of the problems we sometimes have with squid is we do probably see them more than you would think but quite often they're so fast our cameras can't keep up so you just have this like torpedo blur <laughs> the deeper we go the not the worse the cameras are but they're certainly not the super high-end 4k 8k stuff you see in, in some of the shallower stuff so we're kind of at the mercy of what you can buy to go to those depths and squid i reckon know that so they just speed up so we know we can never get a good shot of them they're always eluding us it's just that that group of animals so of all the squid down, what one do you think is the most underrated and deserves more recognition? Everyone's got that special one that you think, no, 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 no. We, we, need to, we need to get some PR behind this particular species. I feel like a weird deep sea squid that doesn't get enough love would be the Juvenatuthis because we've seen it twice. Once by Schmidt Ocean Institute in 2000 and Noah came across it once in 2003 and they literally took footage out of the porthole of the submersible. And it's this got this weird body plan. I think it's uh, it's this sister group to Magna Pena. So it's got a similar weirdly exaggerated, like very skinny body, but very long tentacles, not as long as Magna Pena. Yeah. But it also has like the Cairo toothed elaborate secondary tail and it's just it's just such a weird squid and we've seen it so few times yeah that's i would love to see more of those they're so interesting yeah and so the other interesting thing we noticed about your your twitter feed is you're an avid fan of metal we have to talk about this <laughs> so tell us a bit about your love of heavy metal music and is that or should that be the soundtrack to the deep sea um that's a very interesting point because there are a few metal bands that have deep sea themes out of germany there's ocean and there's also a, like black and doom metal called ahab that uh, i think they released an album last year and it had a bunch of weird deep sea coral and stuff in the album art which i thought was yeah. pretty cool uh yeah i could see you know overall there, there are certainly aspects of it that are kind of applicable to the deep and spooky and mysterious aspect of the deep sea I've had really odd, highly specific music taste for most of my life. And at some point I got bitten by the metal bug. Yeah. Yeah, metal's a big part of our, our operation, so we we like nothing better than deploying landers at five o'clock in the morning with the, the Bluetooth speaker on. And weirdly, our, we've got more classic metal here, so when we're deploying deep sea landers, our soundtrack of choice is often things like Pantera, Cowboys from Hell, stuff like that. That's, that's pretty fitting. I could see that working. Yeah, yeah, it's got you. Got, you've got to get something with that groove. You know that. You know that, you know that specific like Pantera style groove. That's what you need to get. A lander over the side of the wall at four o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere. Perfect. I could totally see that. that yeah, that goes well with boat operations in my head. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, I've come across and like connected with scientists specifically over that. I think at one point I found a, a fungus themed metal band. It was called Bloodspore or something like that. So I put out a tweet asking if there were any mycologists that listened to heavy metal. And lo and behold, a lot of them do, it turns out. <laughs> and I actually, um, one of my scientific side interests, aside from deep sea stuff, is parasitic fungi. And a bunch of the parasitic fungi scientists are really into metal. So that was kind of interesting to find out. Wow. wonder why that is. Someone should do a study in that and try and figure that one out. <laughs> that would be a very interesting question. <laughs> Cool. Well, it's great talking to you, Jeff, and thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It was great talking to you, Alan. Coffee's ready.
Right, yes. So here we are, bouncing around on the Tangaroa. And our little, little weird fish lab. Fish lab, yeah, kind of <laughs> cool, really. I mean, you don't have to go very far to find anything. No, and it usually lands on you if you <laughs> yeah. need it anyway. Yes, if you're wondering where it is, just look down. It'll be at your feet somewhere. <laughs> Sloshing around in here. <laughs> We're currently um, being pounded by four to seven metre southerly punch-up for the last 48 hours. So it's given uh, us a little bit of free time, but we're all feeling a bit ropey. Yeah, <laughs> it's supposed to be coffee with Andrew, but uh, we're on opposite swings. You need a cup. I know, I need a coffee I just don't. as you need I to go don't. to bed. <laughs> but we, we wanted to talk about a deep sea legend, mm -hmm. which is the famous Mr. Blobby. So we've seen that image ascribed to all sorts and the original reference seems totally lost, yeah. but you know because your hand is in that shot. Well, my, I was on that swing when it came up and um, landed on the deck and the two photographers were Robin McPhee, who was working at Tapapa at the time, and Karen Parkinson, who was working at, or still is, working at the Australian Museum. And there were actually three specimens and this sad, deflated, gelatinous looking thing with a sort of Eorian face. And I, I said, uh, Robin and Karen, you guys have got to photograph this face on. <laughs> and Karen did, but she's never received the credit. Every man and his dog has received the credit for that. Photo. I've seen it ascribed yeah. to Greenpeace. Yep. I've seen it ascribed to after the tsunami. There was lots of yeah. people saying that it had washed up oh, with the yeah, tsunami. All our photographs that were put up on the website were all pillaged and, oh, look at these freaky fish that washed up after the Boxing Day tsunami. And um, I was getting told this at, at meetings where I was giving talks. And I was going, no, it's not. You see that hand holding the, um, the fang tooth? The wedding ring is on the right hand. That's my hand. <laughs> I wear my wedding ring on my right hand. And you see that label in that photograph there, the initials at the bottom, AS, those are my initials. <laughs> no, I was nowhere near you know, Southeast Asia when the Boxing Day tsunami hit. 15 years earlier. Something well, like that. 20 years earlier. It's almost 20 years to the day that we're out on North Ends, 2003. Yeah. So here we are doing it all again, but yeah. in a somewhat more hostile environment. <laughs> 20 years later, we're we're on the same vessel. Mm -hmm, on it's the, the same, same vessel. vessel. Yeah. That photo was probably taken in the same room because we got another blobfish. We got another blobby. Not quite in the same room. If, if you listeners imagine, uh, behind us is a kind of a, a hatchway, a servery, which goes into what's called the Detus Dry Lab. And on North Ends, that was actually the photography suite. And so you recreated Mr. Blobby. Yeah, well, when we got one, and it's the same boat, and it's been 20 years, so, um, mm. so yeah, it's it's in slightly better nick. I think it's quite a bit, bit bigger. It's still got its natural markings, but it yeah. still looks a bit deflated and has the but it, and it sad nose. It doesn't really have that sort of proboscis-like nose. No, not as much. No. Not as much. It was in better condition. And, well, I have serious questions as to whether or not we've got the species right there. Right. A number of different species names have been floated for Mr. Blobby. There's Cycrolutes microporus, there's Cycrolutes macidus, and really tragically, uh, the world authority on this group, Joe Nelson, passed away. And um, his um, protege, I guess you could call him, who was going to take over, basically sort of vanished. Nobody knows where he went. He was keyed up to come out to New Zealand to work on the Cycrolutidae for the Fishes of New Zealand book. Everything was lined up and then suddenly he went dark and stopped replying to emails. And in the end, I contacted the museum he was associated with and they were going, no, we don't know where he's gone. So. I don't know. Really mysterious. It's, and it's sad because um, we got a new fish in the genus Ebinania and I was going to suggest that we write that up and describe it as new and, and name it after Joe in honour of all his work on blobfishes yeah. over the years. But uh, it's one of these enduring mysteries. Where did he go? Another one on the to-do list. Mm, it is. There's, there's more to do than not. As I sort of um, go off my shift at Tapapa, maybe, and you're no, coming on to no. my... You're, you're coming on to your at least another 10 years out of you. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to think about it. Think about it. Come on, Tom. Think about it. We've got enough to do after promise this trip. Me you'll, promise me you'll think about it. <laughs> you, want to, you want to describe something which is so amorphous that you've got no landmarks that you can get reliable yeah. measurements off. Trying, that, to, um, trying you, to describe jelly. Yeah, you, you x-ray it and, and, and there's no calcification. I think that's a pterygeophore for a thin ray. Uh, yeah. But the skull, though, the skull's so hard. Well, it is and it isn't. Joe used to hemisect back the skin and stain the skull. And you see the bones are actually very, very thin and fragile, but they're rugose and, and crenulated. So they get their strength from being folded, not from just being sheer mass of calcium, which is kind of cool, really. Yeah, because it's weird to feel that soft flesh and then a really quite firm skull underneath. But most of the deep sea stuff, at least the ones I mess with, the skull is soft as well. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is during the um, previous work, 
program that was done in the Fisher's team with um, Vincent Zinson, uh, he actually got film footage of a blobfish swimming along. And you'd think these things would be sitting on the bottom swimming in short hops, but no, this was off the seabed and sort of sculling itself along like it was rowing a pair of oars with its great big pectoral fins, and it appeared to be neutrally buoyant. So um, the reduction in skeletal mass, um, the jelly, the gelatinous flesh is all moving towards perhaps a neutral buoyancy. Yeah. So it's just kind of cool when you think about it. But unfortunately, mates, for makes for a bad photo in air. Yes, everything, everything sags. You pin the fins out and um, you've got to digitally crop um, the, all the, the skin that sort of oozes <laughs> out on the downhill side on the, on the photo um, desk. And it, it just looks bizarre. It hangs like, I don't know. I'm sure any of our listeners will know that the, the blobfish does not look like that no, in its natural no, environment, no, not, not supported yes. by the water. Yes, so they are kind of cool, though. They are cool. You wouldn't think that they actually score painiforms. No. There you go. <laughs> it was good to be reunited. Yes. Yeah, 20 years down the line. Yes. Another, another Mr. Blobby. Another Mr. Blobby. And this one, although it didn't have the, uh, the proboscis, had had a... Um, I believe a copepod parasite. Yeah, there's a wound on the head. Buried into its head. Ugh. And this thing has disappeared and left a kind of ulcerated sore. These things seem to have it rough. Yeah, I don't there's been a few parasites coming up I don't like the look of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well fingers crossed the weather's going to um, start to behave itself. You're gonna send the lassie come home signal to Yeah, your hopefully picking traps. up traps Very this safe. evening. Yep. Finding them on the surface and then uh, See who's got the best um, grapple, grapple hook toss on deadliest catch. Throw the science grapple hook. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we need a, a grapple gun, I think. Oh, they're pretty underwhelming. Are they? Yeah, yeah, not as good as a someone's arm. Yeah, oh, that's a bit of a shame. Yeah. I would have thought, why work, work harder, work smarter? Uh, the Americans like them, and I was all geared up for, like, proper grapple launcher, but no, it's a bit of a... Vroom. Yeah, we could make one. Yeah, let's make some pyrotechnics. Um, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Keep I mean, us we, busy during the downtime. Yeah, well, I mean, all you need is a tube and... Um, Explosives. It, well, we could use gas. If we, there's, uh, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at a, a barbecue underneath a wrap over there. I'm sure yeah, there's a gas bottle a, associated with that. Yeah, that'd be a propane tank, um, sure. I mean, really, what, I said, what could go wrong? I mean, yeah. <laughs> all right, we've got our afternoon project then. Yeah, I know, and, and um, we could knock up a you know, health and safety briefing and... Bring it up at the toolbox this yeah, afternoon. We'll fill out all the proper forms. We'll, we'll fill out. We'll make sure the forms are filled out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do this thing. All right, that's it. Okay. That's our afternoon sorted. Right, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> And that concludes this month's episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. And if you want to follow us on social media or support us on Patreon, check the show notes or go to podcast at armatusoceanic.com. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups.